welcome to Top of Mind, the show where we talk to real estate industry insiders and experts about the biggest trends impacting the market today. Enjoy the show. Mike Simonson here. Thanks for joining me today. Welcome to the Top of Mind podcast. This is where I talk to the smartest leaders, thinkers, and doers in the real estate industry. For a few years now, we've been sharing the latest market data each week in our weekly video series at Altos Research. With the new Top of Mind podcast, we're looking to add some context to the discussion about what's happening in the market from, from the leaders in the industry. Each week, Altos Research tracks every home for sale in the country, all the pricing, all the supply and demand, all the changes in that data, and we make it available to you before you see it in the traditional channels. People desperately need to know what's happening in the housing market right now. It's been so hot, so competitive, and now the landscape is suddenly changing. So, you know, when people ask me, Mike, can I get the data for my local market? Can we understand what's going on in my local area? The answer is yes. Go to altosresearch.com for a free consultation on how you can use the local real estate market data in your business. So without further ado, I'm happy to introduce my guest today, Len Kiefer, for the Deputy Chief Economist at Freddie Mac. Len has been at Freddie Mac for 13 years and is responsible for primary and secondary mortgage market an analysis and research Macro macroeconomic analysis and forecasting. And we're going to talk about some forecasting today. He also analyzes policy issues affecting the housing industry before Freddie Mac. He was an ass assistant professor at Texas Tech University, where he conducted research on macroeconomics and monetary policy. Len, welcome. Hey, Mike. It's great to be here. Thanks for having me on. Awesome. Well, let's uh, let's dive in. Let's start with tell us a little bit about Freddie Mac and your role there. You know, our audience is a lot of real estate professionals, but also investors and traders and and all of the folks that need to know what's happening in the real estate market right now. So, so tell us about Freddie Mac and your role there. Uh, yeah, thanks, Mike. Yeah, so I'm sure many people in the housing industry may have heard of Freddie Mac, and depending on your involvement, you may or may not know exactly what we do. So just to give you a little bit of a rundown, you know, Freddie Mac was chartered by Congress. So we're what's called a government-sponsored enterprise. And, you know, our mission is to help make, you know, affordable and a liquid housing market where the credit is, is available to potential home buyers and renters across the country. So it's really our, our core mission is to help the housing market facilitate financing of homes on the single family front and multifamily apartments on the multifamily front. So we fund Freddie Mac uh, funds about one in four, one in five of single family homes in, in the country and is the one of the largest single sources of multifamily financing. So we're really deeply involved in the U.S. housing market. That's the core of our mission. And a lot of folks at Freddie, it's a large organization, really dedicated to that mission. So I work in a group called our Economic and Housing Research Group. I'm the deputy chief economist. My boss is, is Freddie Mac's chief economist, Sam Cater, and he leads a team of economists and analysts who kind of wear two different hats. Uh, we wear a hat when we're talking externally, so we're often speaking to the public, to trade groups, industries, folks on the call may have seen me or my boss, you know, speaking at a different event where, you know, a Freddie Mac economist might be helpful to help explain what's going on in the economy, housing, and overall mortgage market. Uh, we also help internally, right? There's a lot of folks at Freddie who are deeply invested in understanding what's going on in the evolving housing market. They manage risk. 
you know, a very large portfolio of mortgage loans, multifamily loans. They want to understand, you know, what may happen with home prices, what's going to happen in the general macro economy and rents, home sales, all of those housing market indicators are really important for how, you know, our, our business partners can help manage the risk facing the company. And so uh, it's a very intense business, especially over the last couple of years as we've had, you know, these enormous shocks hitting the U.S. economy and U.S. housing market. We'll talk, I'm sure, a lot about that. But, you know, we were definitely talking internally, we're talking externally, we're trying to you know, do our best analysis to, to answer these really important questions that are facing our industry and, and the country as a whole. That's great. Well, and, and because you do a quarterly forecast, market forecast, which is out now, we're going to talk, we're going to dive in a little bit about what, what we're looking at, what we're expecting, what, we, what, what are some of the variables. We're going to do that in just a second. We're going to get to some of that data, but, but first I'm interested... You said Freddie Mac funds one in four or one in five mortgages. What does that mean, fund? Oh uh, yeah, so so we so by our you know our charter right, which was issued by Cong an act of Congress right, we are not allowed to to be in the primary mortgage markets, which means Freddie Mac themselves ourselves we can't issue a mortgage loan right. We cannot go out and make a loan to an individual. What we can do is purchase those loans from primary market participants. Those are your banks, your credit unions, your mortgage company, the folks that are actually, you know, dealing with customer, you know, borrowers, right? If I'm purchasing a home, right? The, the bank or the mortgage company will, you know, make that loan and then to help, you know, replenish their funds, right? They can go into the secondary market and sell that loan. So if they don't have a big balance sheet, if they're not a large depository bank that has like, you know, a lot of savings deposits to help fund them, for mortgage companies, they can go into the secondary market and sell the loan. And those loans are then purchased by you know, folks like Freddie and some, some others out there, right? That they purchase those loans, put them together in structured securities, which help investors you know, manage the risks associated with those loans and help ultimately reduce the cost to borrowers, right? By having the securitization, the secondary market creates a very liquid market, right? That makes the cost of borrowing ultimately for prospective home buyers and and refinance borrowers much lower because they can tap into global capital markets, right? We're able to sell these securities, not just here domestic in the United States, but around the world. And since many investors, you know, really want to be invested in, you know, U.S. dollar denominated securities and they, they like to be invested in real estate, that can be a, a very useful instrument. And, and it really, ultimately, the benefit then to the, the home buyer is the a, a lower mortgage rate. A lower mortgage rate. And, and, more availability of that credit and things yeah. like that. And, and, and so Freddie Mac exists because at some point the federal government said, like, we, we think it's important for people to be able to buy houses and we want to facilitate that transaction. Yeah. Yeah. And there is a, you know, a sister organization that you may have heard of that Fannie Mae, who's very similar, actually was created earlier out of the great depression. So it was a new deal program. Because, you know, the, if you've seen A Wonderful Life or, you know, you saw the sort of folks, pressures that folks were facing in the Depression, you know, local banks really had trouble with capital. And so it helped to sort of create more stable financial system. Fannie Mae was created. And then later on in, in 1970 was when Freddie Mac was created to provide a little bit of competition and, and, and you know, but very similar in our business models and overall mission. That's interesting. So it's really about so that it's a little bit of not just all the market going through one player. It's having a, a, sep, a second, it was why it was created to have a second organization there. Yeah. Yeah, interesting. I didn't know that. I didn't know that about why, why that happened there. So I want to talk a little bit about your background and how you got here, especially one of the things that you're 
well known for is your visualization skills at taking the data and presenting it to people in really powerful ways. So before we start talking about forecasts and where the market's going and things, tell us, tell, tell me how you like, where you got here, where, how you developed your expertise in, and like, give us that story. Yeah, so I'm an economist by training. So I, I actually myself was not a housing, was not focus of my graduate's program. I was more of a macro time series, you know, applied forecasting. So that's related, right? But, uh, but I, you know, I came out of grad school. My wife's also an economist. We, she took, we took jobs at Texas Tech University, but, uh, you know, she was only there as a visitor. So she moved to DC, pursue opportunities. I followed her and, uh, you know, got hired on at, at Freddie Mac, which was, you know, ultimately a great place to work. I, I know I knew some folks that happened to work in there, you know, that, that had hired on to Freddie. And, and I was really fortunate to get that, you know, position and, and get to work with a lot of smart people. One of the great things about working there is people care about the mission, but they also are pretty smart to be managing the risk and, and modeling and, and, and analyzing the market. And you can learn a lot. And one of the things that became very clear is a real challenge for smart people or really detail focused people, people that get a PhD and go through a lot of training is you get in-depth and you really know, have to know a subject matter at its ins and outs at, at, at an extreme focus, right? That's what is required really to complete a PhD in America. But that doesn't lend itself very well to business communication, right? So you are spending your life on a dissertation, right? Or five years of your life where you're focused on it. And you get a chance to tell your professors and things, they'll listen. But when you're in a business meeting, right? They don't have a lifetime or a long time for you to explain everything. You really have to be able to communicate powerfully. They need their, they, they want the insights, right? They want smart people that have, have advanced training that can help them manage risk and think about things in a sophisticated way, but they want to be able to understand it in a, in a, in a quicker way and get to the point and really drive hard. And so I was fortunate enough that, that Freddie actually had sponsored some training on data visualization. There's a, an expert named Edward Tufte, who people who study visualizations may know. He has these seminars, or at least he used, I think he still has them. Yeah. where he would go around in a ballroom in Arlington, Virginia, as I was, and he would, you know, talk about his books and talk about, you know, effective, you know, methods for data visualization. It was like a two or three day thing. And it was really eye-opening for me to think about all the criticisms that he had about different visualizations. I was looking at stuff I had been working on and very clearly violating all of those maxims. Really wasn't even aware, right? The thing that was, I wasn't even aware of data visualization as a science, as an art. It really was not developing. This was probably in the mid 2000 or late 2009 or so is when I was in this training and it really opened my eyes and I said wow this is really powerful you know this is a scientific way of thinking about these things this is going to also really help me in being able to communicate to non-economists that are you know smart people but they're busy and they're experts but they're not focused on the thing I'm looking at they're not willing to look through my giant spreadsheet and look at all the numbers they need to get to the point and these visualization tools if used effectively can really enhance that and so I really bought in, you know, my boss at the time was very much bought into that and the team. And so we had embraced that as a philosophy and I got to learn in practitioners, people that were using those techniques, I could see it, right? It wasn't just, I went to this training, they talked about it and we said, okay, we flipped through the books and forgot about it. No, the next week when I was there, I was actually paying attention to what my colleagues were doing and they were applying these principles, these ideas of, you know, effective data visualization um, which is now more widespread. You know, it, it was more like a secret sauce. Now it's still a secret sauce, but less so, right? Because more people are aware the general quality of visualization in the financial industry where I work has risen a lot, partially due to these types of trainings and this awareness. But it was really a helped me succeed early on in my career and become a better communicator 
a better way to get across the key points in, a, in an effective way. And it's a, it's a great exercise. I embrace it almost daily. I'm making a new data visualization. Not all of them are works of art or, or effective, but I learn something from them every time. And that practice, that habit really trains your mind to think about, okay, what's the important part about this data? You know, there's all these data releases that come out. What do I really want to focus on? Where am I going to help people understand? Or what am I going to understand by looking at it? And using these different techniques, I found to be really enriching, really rewarding. I'm constantly learning. There's a new, it's a growing field. People are coming up with new visualizations, new tools, new techniques, and it's really exciting. It's a kind of hobby of mine, even outside of work. You know, I'll look at these things and, and see what people are coming up with and check out different blogs and Twitter feeds and other things where people are sharing these ideas, which are really, you know, really growing and, and developing and really advancing pretty rapidly, I'd say. Yeah, for sure. I've taken the Tufty class too, and I've got <laughs> books on the shelf behind me too. Oh, yeah. And, and learn a ton. And, and I noticed you do things very well. Some of the tough, the principles you do very well, like the information density, like, like I've watched you do 40 years of mortgage rates into like a one chart, like one visualization. And like, that's, it's not just one line for 40 years, it's 40 separate lines and it's, and, and, but you can really call And then I know you, you, you use color very effectively to highlight the things that you want to, to, to the story that you want to tell in the data. Yeah, Mike, you mentioned mortgage rate. That's actually a great example because at Freddie, we published this mortgage rate survey, the primary mortgage market survey that has been around since 1970, almost the exception of Freddie Mac. So for more than 50 years, I haven't been working on it for 50 years, but I've been working on it every week for the last decade, right? And every week we have a new mortgage rate. And so part of the exercise and almost a meditation around the, the mortgage rates is to create a new chart or challenge myself, you know, to see, like, can I look at this in a different way? Because you're looking at the same thing, you know, it's recently it's been very dramatic. So there's been a lot to, to look at, but some weeks, you know, it's a blip here or there. And so trying to think of different ways or the different angles, it's a real, you know, a nice sort of exercise just to look at a single data series for 10 years, thinking about it every week and coming up, you know, with a slightly different variation on it, you might, you can refine some things and yeah. you try to iterate. I think, I think really important is iteration. You know, you start something, you don't just stick, you know, you got to try to learn. You try experiment. You take some risks. Things don't always work out. Color. I've made many, many errors with that. But sometimes you find something, maybe by luck, that actually tends to work a little that, bit, that, and then you kind of learn and build. That's great. And so, for listeners or watchers who haven't, who don't know Len and his work, follow Len on Twitter because we get to see that publication. And you've actually written some good blog posts about the work you do and and the decisions you made, especially in the R code. Right? You usually work in R. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I use R. That was, you know, the language that that really works for me. And I try to share because I've learned so much from people. So if, if I make something that I think might be interesting, I, I often will post it on my personal blog. People can, you know, freely, you know, look at that and modify it, do whatever they find useful with it or try to learn because I've learned so much. If it's helpful, I really enjoy that. And it's also a reference for me later on. I can Oh, I made this chart. Yeah. <laughs> I can go to my, you know, my page there and find it. So I, I don't have to look through my model directories, which might be a little messy. Sometimes. Might be a little messy. Uh, that's, that's so much fun. And one of the most, one of the ones, maybe your most viral of those was the, was the job loss time series mm -hmm. chart, which you animated so that we could watch job loss go across time. And then, and then all of a sudden COVID and, and it rocketed through the, it was so dramatic. I think a lot of people picked that up and, and paid attention. 
Yeah, you know, animation animation is one of those things that's hit or miss, right? You can easily go wrong with it or you can do things that aren't necessary. But in that case, I think, you know, if you just use the historical standard deviation, it was like 30 sigma, right? So is this a, it was off the charts, right? If yeah. you've seen it, it's like this hockey stick straight vertical up. And it was so dramatic that by, you know, I had the axis expand. And so that really drove home just how unique the economic environment was in March of 2020. Nothing we had ever seen in, in, in lots of time series. So yeah, and that really resonated with a lot of people because they were obviously feeling that things were way different at that time than anything they could ever remember. Yeah, that's that's for sure. And, and we actually, along the, the last couple of years, we've had a visualization that has been picked up and been really powerful too. So that was this dramatically unusual condition that you illustrated because the, the, the axis the, the y-axis doesn't move very far and then all of a sudden it moved a long way and when we would do we would show inventory of homes for sale we could watch the same curve over time getting lower and lower and lower the peaks of the summer lower each year and then and then when COVID hit it just dropped through the floor and and because we were able to illustrate that for people the world took notice and it was suddenly like, you know, that like, wow, this is really happening. It's, and it, it's really made it concrete for people really, really fascinating way. But that actually, you talked about the, the forecast, you know, and, and your, and your weekly measurement that let's, let's switch gears a little, a little bit and talk about the latest forecast. So, and I'm interested in talking about, you know, the way you and Freddie Mac and the team there is viewing the future of the real estate and the mortgage market, what's what we should expect coming or what you expect to come. And I'm also interested in, we can get into this in a minute, is is how do you forecast in a in a market that's changing this fast? So, so tell us about so the new the the new quarterly survey forecast survey is out. Tell us about what that covers and 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 you know, what we should be thinking about for the coming, however far out your forecast. Yeah, thanks, Mike. So my team and my boss and the folks on, on who work with me help put together a quarterly forecast. Some folks do a monthly forecast. We find that actually, you know, the amount of new information, our ability to process it isn't really improved month to month. We do some things internally, but but really that seems the right frequency for us to, to try to come up with a new view. Now that things get rapidly dated in a quickly changing environment, but still think that's the most useful thing for us to do. So, but we're constantly watching and tracking these things in real time. And, and our forecast is really focused on the things that Freddie Mac is really keyly fo key focused on. So we do not do a broad GDP or CPI that we forecast. We focus more narrowly on the U.S. single-family housing market, so our we have some friends. Family they do a buy twice a year multifamily outlook. So we're focusing on the single-family housing market. So we focus on mortgage origin or mortgage interest rates, home sales, home prices, and then mortgage originations. Because we, one of the things that we have, I think, a lot of insight on, and we have a lot of data. We can track what's happening in terms of the mortgage market. How many you know, we do it by dollar volume, how many billions of dollars of mortgage originations are each quarter. So it's relatively limited in the, in the horizon. We go out a year or two, we're probably getting into the midpoint of 
you know, currently we go out to 2023, probably, you know, the next quarter we'll probably be ready to roll in and start, you know, forecasting 2024, which sounds like crazy science fiction, just how far away that is, but it'll be here soon enough, right? And so, so we do that exercise and what we really focus on is try to kind of think narratively about what's the current situation in the economy and what is the most likely path forward for the housing market in particular and the mortgage market, right? They kind of go in lockstep. If home sales and house prices go a certain direction, that almost dictates what the purchase originations market is going to look like. I mean, there's cash sales, so there's a little bit of slippage, but it's but it's pretty highly correlated. And the refinance market is going to depend critically on what's happening with mortgage interest rates. So there's a nice synergy among the elements that we forecast. And, and it really hinges on a view that our chief economist and the team, my team, you know, folks work with me, help supporting Sam, our boss, to think through, okay, what are the key factors facing the economy? Where are we right now? Because in the mortgage market, a lot of the data, I know you do great work tracking data at Altus, right? A lot of the data is not clear, right? And there's not a single authoritative source, although I'm sure you might have some opinions on who should be authoritative source for certain things. But, you know, for mortgage originations, for example, that, that is tracked, you know, the Fannie Mae and the Mortgage Bankers Association also put out forecast analysis, but we don't always agree even on the history because the data that comes out is with a lag and we have to interpret because there's not a census of mortgage origination. So we have to even figure out what happened, you know, earlier this year it was a lack of our debate. You know, when we were putting together our, our latest forecast. We were talking a lot about what actually happened in early 2022, because that's going to dictate know the trend right if you know you bump things up and you think in percentage changes then that's going to influence the, the whole path forward so it's a lot of rich discussion we actually look at a lot of different data sources to help us understand where we are today and then put on our best thinking about okay what do we think is going to happen in the broader economy how do we think different policies you know what is the fed going to do what's going to happen in terms of you know fiscal policy there going to be any major changes is there going to be a recession Factor that all together and then think, well, where are we at the housing market with its own unique circumstances? You mentioned super low inventory. Maybe it's coming up, but how much does it have to come up before house prices start to cool off from this scorching hot rate they've been at? What's going to happen with home sales now that mortgage interest rates have jumped up more than two percentage points? And then how is that going to filter through to the mortgage origination market? You know, refinance volumes are going to contract quite a lot. There's very few borrowers today who could benefit from a rate refinance. Some borrowers have a lot of equity or many homeowners have a lot of equity. So there is still some cash out refinance activity. And so when we think through the forecast, we have to think, well, how much do we think there will be? And then on a purchase side, it's really a function largely of home sales and house prices, and also a view on what we may think happens on the cash, all cash part of the, the home sales market. Yeah, that's really though, that's really deep in single family in the market. So let's start with the question, what's going to happen with the macro economy? Yeah, that, well, you know, one of the things, uh, this will come back to approach, right? Because we, this is like our base view. And, you know, we put together a cogent view that we think fits together, but we always got to think through scenarios, right? But yeah. on our base view, you know, it looks like we're going to skirt recession, right? There's concern, certainly, in the in the environment. And, you know, that's certainly a possibility, and it's increased you know, since the beginning of this year. If you think about the broader economic conditions, think about the labor market, still very low unemployment rate. Job growth was very strong in the most recent data that I've seen, which would have been through June right, of 2022. Um, so while there will probably be a, inevitably a slowdown in the broader economy, it doesn't necessarily mean recession. And if that's the context, if the labor market maybe sees some softening, right? 
if there's job openings down a little bit, but the unemployment rate doesn't spike like it would in a recession, then that environment shapes up to be a challenging environment for the housing market because rates are so high, but much less challenging than it would be were the overall you know, economy to slip into recession. So that's undergirds our, our, our baseline view, but there's certainly you know, big risks you want to consider on either side. Yeah. So that's interesting that, that as of right now, the view is sort of that looks like we'll skirt recession. And I, I mean, I can, I, can under, I can understand that and I'm sympathetic to it, although it looks like maybe the bond markets and things are kind of now leaning towards likely to recession, more, more likely than not. Is that, is that true? I'm not a bond guy, so I don't really know. So my former chief economist was a bond guy. I'm not in the thick of it. And, you know, it's a real risk to overinterpret the bond market. I know the tendency is there and I know the narratives are there, but there are many narratives that can fit the data points we have. And so I'm cautious in overinterpreting that, but certainly there's a signal there, right? And the fact that, you know, relative to a peak, you know, in, I guess, late June and, and early July, rates have eased a little bit, which tells you something about the long run view. But, uh, you know, there's a lot of volatility, too. And so yeah. things can shift pretty quickly. And, and it so much hinges on expectations for where the future is going to be that, 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 that you know, we can see things swing pretty quickly, even between, you know, just a, a short time. So that's, that's something to be cautious about overreacting to that. For sure. OK, that's fair enough. Um, so, so if we skirt recession, what are other macro trends that we in the housing market should be like aware of or sensitive to or or expecting over the next year, year and a half? Yeah, I think a really important thing that folks that are analyzing the housing market or professionals busy working in the housing market have to really keep in mind is the full impact of the COVID pandemic, right? We're not completely through the pandemic. While our, you know, our, our hope is from the economic point of view, the impact will be relatively small. We're not anticipating, you know, a major sort of shift there. That's a risk. But but even in the world where you know we find the case rates remain relatively low and manageable, and there's no new spikes and the variants, you know, no new variant emerges. Even in that world, we have to deal with all of the shifts that occurred because of the pandemic. And and one of the most important was the migration of people during and currently ongoing because of the shifts that happened in the pandemic. In fact, some analysts, you know, folks at the Fed that have looked at this have said that perhaps as much as half of the increase in house prices could be due to the fact that the pandemic opened up, you know, remote work options and that people have moved across the country. And in our own research notes that we've, you know, put out on our website, we're doing a series of research notes related to migration during and after the pandemic or through the pandemic period. And we're definitely seeing that the fact that folks were able, had some more flexibility, they could leave some of the higher cost markets and move to what were for them lower cost markets, put enormous pressure on those markets and contributed to the very strong rates of house price growth in places like your Boise, your Nashville, parts of you know the Southeast, where even though you know the prices have gone up a lot from where they were a year ago, they're still relatively low. Like if you're comparing Boise to the Bay Area, for example, or you know New York or DC to, to the, some of the southeastern markets. So, so that dis, that dislocation, that rebalancing, that shift is really important, and it's really important how permanent it is. And we don't know because we're still you know analyzing it, but it looks like a, probably I think you know to some extent those remote work options aren't going to swing 100% back to where they were pre-COVID, and so. A lot of those markets may well have seen this permanent shift higher in demand. And I think people who will remember this 
will be thinking about that when they're considering the kind of house they want to buy, right? If I'm talking to you right now from my home office where I'm fortunate enough to be able to work, not everyone can do that, but I'm, I'm fortunate enough to be able to work remotely and which, you know, from de- on time to time. And that, that option, you know, people need more space, right? If they're in a small place, you know, I was talking to some folks, you know, doing their work from an ironing board during, you know, in 2020, right? That's not a long-term viable solution. They're like, well, I better, probably better, you know, get some more space or a better place where I can, if I'm going to be doing this long-term. So I think that created a big shift in the demand. Is it permanent? We don't know, but it's something to watch for. It's absolutely has been very highly correlated with the dynamics in the housing markets. And so how that balances out is going to be crucially important going forward. Yeah, I think that's, it's a real critical observation that it, it was probably half of the home price gains over the last few years were because we could export home prices from the Bay Area and New York and DC to everywhere else in the country. That's, I think, a real important insight. If that feels to me, it feels to me pretty permanent. You know, I, I have an office in downtown San Francisco and yeah. it's still pretty empty. You know, like I use it because I like to have an office. I like to have the space to go to. Uh, but, but man, uh, you know, like, it, you know, there's, Nobody's planning on going back there. So it's really like there's some long-term impacts on that. And you and so at Freddie, you you can work remote. Sometimes you're working, you're sort of doing hybrid. What are you doing? Yeah, yeah, we're doing a hybrid. I mean, it varies somewhat by team, but in general, we are, you know, coming back for part of the week, a couple of days a week. A couple of days a week, which seems pretty common too. It does seem like I, I was talking with Adam Osmak, who is an economist, and, and he he's pointed out he's strongly in the remote work space. And he was pointing out that it seems like the trend is only increasing now for more remote work as opposed to less post-pandemic time or at the end of the pandemic time. Are there other macro functions that we should be thinking about or variables that we should be watching? Well, I mean, I, I can't believe we've gotten this far in a conversation without hitting on inflation, but that's, you know, that's the one, right? Because we have not experienced the kind of inflation we're seeing currently since the early 1980s. And I think it really affects the psychology of the mindset of the potential home buyer because it really affects your, you know, expected costs, right? If you're buying a home, right, that's a long-term prospect. If you're not intending to move, you know, you got a mortgage could be 30 years. Many people are thinking, right, ah, I'm going to... I don't like moving. So if I got a place, I'd like to stay there a long time. At least I imagine I'm going to stay there, you know, a a long time. So it's a long-term decision. So you really have to think about what's the economic environment, not just today, but over the the term. And if you get a fixed mortgage, which most, the vast majority of home buyers are getting, then you've locked in an interest rate. And so you have to ask yourself, well, is this a cheap rate or a low rate, right? We're, you know, today around five and a quarter, 5.3 was the, you know, when we're recording here on a 30-year fixed. Is that cheap or expensive? Well, it depends on what you think inflation is going to look like over the next, you know, three to five to seven years, depending on your horizon, right? If you thought inflation was going to stay stubbornly high, then that's a pretty cheap, you know, real inflation-adjusted mortgage rate. If you thought, no, inflation is going to come way down, then that's pretty expensive mortgage rate. And I think that is really important. It's going to, that psychology is going to drive folks' decision. It also def- drives the value of home ownership, right? If you thought inflation was going to be high, home ownership is a hedge. You're not going to see your rents go up. You've locked in a fixed payment. That, that's really going to affect the psychology. So I think that's a really important, you know, I'm in the camp that inflation has been sticky. It will probably stay a bit sticky, 
but going to come down over the next you know couple of years. But it, it's it may take a little while because rent are so sticky and rent's such a big component of inflation. And so that's going to affect the psychology. But it really matters. It doesn't matter what I, the economists, think. It matters what the prospective home buyers think here this year, or more importantly, I think next spring, right when they're deciding to list or sell. And who who knows exactly where mortgage rates will be at that time. But it'll be a really important for driving that behavior. That's that's yeah, really powerful. So the so you expect sticky inflation, meaning whatever at eight or whatever now. So you can imagine maybe it subsiding a little bit in by the end of the year, but but not dramatically. Yeah, I mean it's hard because of all the, you know, gas and oil prices and food and right. that's in a hint. Wars. But but yeah, yeah. I'm gonna in the baseline, because again, so much of that is just tied up with rent. And, and a number of economists have just looked at the fact that because of the way rent is measured in the CPI, which, you know, it, it's lagging, it doesn't track market rate rents, it's not designed to do that. So that even if market rate rents slow down today, they won't show up in a measured CPI until next year. And so that's just going to give you a lot of momentum in headline, you know, the prints of inflation we're going to see throughout the balance of 2022. Well, I didn't realize it was that much of a lag. So market rents slow today, show up in the in the CPI next year. Six to nine months. So there's been, you know, a number of folks. My 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 friend and mentor who sadly passed away, Frank Notaft, who was the chief economist at, at CoreLogic, uh, had done some very interesting work because they have a, a measure of repeat rents. And you know, one of the last things Frank told me about when I got a chance to talk with him was about you know, their measure of rents that they had using CoreLogic data that they had, you know, put together and how it led the, you know, the, the, the rental rates and measured in the CPI and how he was telling folks about that. And part of his prediction is very convincing argument. I totally buy it and seen it borne out in the data. That's fascinating. I had not, I didn't know that. And I can tell you that, you know, we measure market rents, we measure asking rents each week. They're not coming down yet. They're still ticking up each week. Like it's really, that's really fascinating. And so that implies sticky inflation for at least a while until we see that starting to, to shift. That's fascinating. It's also, you know, as rates stay elevated and maybe even climb more, it's one of the factors that I look at and say, you know, investors in a, in a, a fearing a recessionary economy, maybe thinking about selling homes now, adding to inventory, but as rents stay elevated, that motivation is actually d- diminished and there's more investor demand, like, because even with money costs more higher, more expensive right now, like the, the revenue is pretty good and, and as actually as best it's ever been and, and still going. Yeah, I think, I think that's really important. That's why I mentioned, you know, Freddie Max, you know, multifamily folks. And we talk a lot with our colleagues over there, because even if you're talking about single family rental, they, you know, apartment rental market is, you know, adjacent and gonna, there's gonna be some substitutability. So you gotta kind of track both and be aware of what's happening there, not just the single family owner market, that, that, that's gonna drive that. And when you talk with those folks, uh, you know, or other researchers that are looking at the multifamily market, they've been very optimistic about where rent growth would be, you know, the last I heard, and I was talking with many different analysts, not just at Freddie, but in, you know, other you know, shops, just feeling given, know, where the housing supply situation in aggregate, not just, you know, months supply for single family, but overall housing available is still too low given our population. And that's just put enormous pressure. And you see that 
in rents across the spectrum, single family for, you know, houses for rent, apartments, and, and you know, other, other structures that are renting, just a very strong rental market. That's fascinating. Yeah, for sure. So, so we talked macro and we talked, we talked a little bit about rent, but, but let's talk about the next level down about what you work on in the forecasting. Let's talk about the mortgage markets and mortgage rates. You know, like I've, I've always said that I, I, like I have no ability to predict mortgage rates. You know, I bought my first house in 1996 and, you know, locked in at eight and a half percent because I thought it was cheap. And I was, so I locked it in for 30 years. I bought my second house at six and a half percent and I locked it in for 30 years. I bought my third house at four and a half percent and I locked it in for, <laughs> I have no idea. And so, so, but, and then this year, like you even expected, I expected a year and a half ago that mortgage rates would start rising and then they didn't. And then, and then this year it's starting in, you know, January, we expected them to rise, but then they rose way more than I expected. So what do I, what should we be looking at for the, the next year of mortgage rates? What, what are the variables or what's the, what's the future look like? Can I, can I share yeah, a related anecdote about mortgage rates? Cause I think, you know, in forecast, you know, my, my team at Freddie helps compile our mortgage rate survey. Right. And, and, and one of the things we do, you know, we do forecasting too. And an exercise we do to try to, you know, build humility is just to do a very short-term forecast, which is on every Friday we get together, you know, we have a meeting, we talk about what's been happening in the economy and we, we go, okay, what do we think the 30-year mortgage rate is going to be in our next week's survey? And no, you know, peaking ahead, right? So we start our survey on Monday. So, so we put that in and it's a great exercise in humility, you know, because it's very difficult to predict. Now, wisdom of the crowd, we actually on average kind of get it right, but, but even just that very short-term, you know, prediction is very difficult. And if you ask longer-term predictions, you know, not many folks have done well at that. So you got to have a lot of humility when you come into the rates market. Nevertheless, you got to have a view, you know, if you're putting together and you got to think about where you thought was the most likely path for rates. And, and in, in that case, you know, probably a lot of the interest rate increase has already happened, right? That the rates have moved up very quickly in 2022, primarily in anticipation of what would be happening or what's happening now over summer as the Fed has tightened their policy rate and may continue later into this year, but that's not news to the financial markets. That's kind of baked in and sort of already priced in. And as we alluded to earlier in the discussion, they've softened a little bit recently, just as views about the future may have grown a little bit dimmer. And so that suggests to me that probably the best, you know, forecast for rates is something relatively flat, maybe even down a little off their recent peaks or you know, and then gradually weakening a little bit as, as again, the economy may avoid recession, but definitely grows a bit slower and inflation starts to get tamed and come down in 2023. And so in that world, if that is indeed how things play out, then you're likely to see, you know, the mortgage rates ease a little bit from, from where they are now, but not get anywhere near those historic lows that we enjoyed, you know, in 2020 and 2021. Yeah, for sure. So, so flat rates where it's hard to see much higher from here, but you can, it's also hard to see much lower from here. Well, you can see it, right? I mean, I, I, you know, part of this is risk management, right? We have to come up with a lot of scenarios, right? And then, you know, we talked to the, the folks in risk management. They're paying, you know, they're thinking dark scenario. You're an economist. Come on. You got to get me dark because I, you know, I need to be prepared for all the things. And so, yes, we oblige. We can come up with dark scenarios. You can think of things that could happen that certainly could give you a very adverse situation. But in, but in some sense, they require 
you know, very unexpected developments. They're not close to a baseline of shock, something, you know, like COVID that came, you know, that would be unexpected and really move things in order to, to move you in a predictable way. You know, the thing about, I think one of the lessons from COVID is a lot of things were very unpredictable about how, you know, the economy would respond. And in retrospect, they seem obvious, but at the time they were far from obvious how it was going to play out. Yeah. One of the things in the mortgage market that, that I probably underappreciated over the last bunch of years was how much the Fed playing in buying mortgage securities was impacting rates. And now I, I think like this is, this is outside my daily study, but it's, it sounds like the Fed is now unwinding some of those positions. Is that true? Is that, is, and is that one of the things contributing to higher rates? Do I have that? Yeah, that right? gets tricky. Yeah, this gets tricky with that. And I'm not the rates expert. So I want to be careful, you know, because, you know, representing Freddie here about speaking. So I'll, I'll just be a little measured and say that, you know, a lot, some of the economics here, you know, is not completely certain. It's something that folks watch. It's certainly a factor that's moving through and having an impact. But, uh, you know, how exactly it gets pretty technical. And a lot of the, you know, I mentioned I'm not a bond guy. I'm not on the market desk day to day. And, 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 and frankly, given how volatile markets have been moving, things have been moving very quickly. There's a lot of anticipation. So I'll just say, yes, it's certainly having an impact. Folks, very smart people across, you know, real experts, you know, not just, you know, industry practitioners, but, you know, researchers are also looking at it. And it's not 100% clear. There are different estimates for how much the impact will be. But, you know, those are also, like with many academic and other estimates, a wide range. So we don't know for sure. Well, maybe I should have a a rates person on. Yeah. Maybe a bond desk person. Let me know if you if you know somebody who might fit that or listeners. I might know, know a couple. Might yeah. Know a couple. That'd be really fascinating because there's that's you know that's not my space, and so there's some real interesting things there. Okay, so that's mortgage market for the future, and so yeah, we there are scenarios where we could see rates tanking from here because because and those would probably be like big recession or some kind of shock that causes real slowdown and therefore the 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 rates respond to that and and they have a little bit as the as the view of the economy next year kind of weakens the rates have dropped a little bit already so we could yeah. see that uh, uh, so that fair enough on that scenario what about your view of the housing market in general home prices and transaction volumes yeah, th- those are kind of the key, you know, ones that we spend a lot of time, especially on the price one from a, you know, Freddie Mac point of view, you know, we're, we're thinking about the collateral and what, you know, we guarantee mortgages. Part of our business model, right, is, you know, we take away the credit risk from bond investors, folks who invest in mortgage-backed securities, you know, the, the, that credit risk portion of the, you know, the house home loan is guaranteed by Freddie Mac. And so we are all holders of that credit risk. Now we sell some of that in other financial transactions, but still, a critical component for Freddie Mac's business is what happens with home prices, right? But, you know, you can't talk about that without talking about transaction volumes as well. If you look at, you know, rates are up a lot, two percentage points plus from a year ago, the biggest year over year increase since really the early 1980s. So a big key question is, okay, what does that do to the housing market? Um, One of the challenges from being a macroeconomist is you have really small samples, right? We only have one history. You know, we can look at, five, you know, seven episodes, but, you know, conditions always change. So you have to try your best. You could look at international data. You could look at, you know, subnational data to try to tease it out, but it's really hard. 
But if you look at the limited history that we have and the sort of best research that's out there, it tends to suggest that what happens when rates move up is that quantities, the transaction volumes, construction, purchase originations, those decline, but prices do not tend to fall. The rate of growth in prices does tend to slow. That's at least been the history. Of course, we've had exceptions that are notable, right? So you don't wanna totally tell yourself that's exactly how it will be. But there's a lot of logic to that because in the sense of what's gonna trigger folks selling at a significant loss would have to be a forced sale, right? Did they lose their job and they can no longer make their payment do they have to sell into a falling market? And if, if they're able to keep servicing the mortgage and the, they've locked in a low rate, it's hard to see how they would start to sell in a falling market unless you know, they really, you know, some life events. So I think from a macro perspective, you've really got to have that additional layer to really get a pretty significant decline in outright decline in prices. That doesn't mean that the rate of growth in prices is not due for a pretty big slowdown. We've been growing at you know, near record highs higher than we were in the mid 2000s, higher by some measures than we were in the high inflation period of the late 70s and early 1980s. So the rate of growth of house prices has very likely should decline, right? And in a normal sort of, you know, balanced economy. And so we should expect to see that. And the question is how rapidly that will happen. Not a lot of momentum in the housing market. And so measured house prices may not pick up that slowdown. They haven't certainly in the most recent data, at least a lot of the data, maybe the listing data might show a little bit of that. I'm not sure. I'm curious if you have a view on what you've seen on the listings, but at least in terms of transactions completed, closed sales, I haven't yet seen a lot of evidence there of a slowdown, but we should expect to see the rate of growth in prices pretty materially slow in the late summer and into fall. I don't know. Is that consistent with what you're seeing in the data? Yeah, for sure. You know, and, and the leading indicators that we can watch are, there's a few of them. There's there is, we have the, the ask price, the median price of all the homes on the market, but there is a really cool one that is the median price of the newly listed cohort each week. Uh, mm-hmm. And that is a, is a wisdom of the crowds thing where it's like those sellers, those listing agents, you know, and they know how many like people were shopping at that last open house. They know how many open bidders were, were. And now when we list your new one, we're like, Ooh, there's no offers down the street. We're going to price that one down a little bit. And so you get this like wisdom of the crowds thing where it's really, you know, like, you know, exactly where like they know exactly where to price the house to sell it. And any given house may be over or underpriced, but, but they know exactly. So that's one of the leading indicators. And that tends to be uh, about four months before the closed transaction. House oh, on the market okay. now, it gets listed now. It's on the market. Maybe it stays a month. Then it gets an offer and then it takes another month to close or 60 days. And then, and then you start report, reporting it out. So like you can see the, that data now. And it's been actually really robust still, really up mm-hmm. until the last latest week. And so the July 4th holiday week had a little dip in it, which might be notable and, and has been holding up. But there's another leading indicator that we like to track, which is the percentage of homes on the market with price reductions. Mm-hmm. And so normally about a third of homes take a price cut before they sell. And so when demand is ultra high, fewer need to take a price cut. And so the beginning of the year, we were at about, normally it's 30% and we had about 15% that needed price cuts because there were multiple offers and all those things. And now we're back to 30% and, and the slope is up. So you can really see that anybody that's overpriced is taking a cut to get a transaction to, and that will close out in the future. So this is, pricing signals for transactions that haven't happened yet. And 
my expectation there is by August, late August, September, we'll be in the 40% range. And that's going to be really showing some of the cool things. We also can look at year-over-year changes in inventory and use that to have a rule of thumb on transaction prices a year out further in the future. So right now we have 31% more homes on the market than we did a year ago. And so that implies to us that we're flat home price gains next year, like zero percent, you know, it's essentially somewhere around zero, no, no price gains over the next year because the supply is more than it has been. Like it's, it doesn't support the supply demand metric then that, that we've had in that those home price gains. So like, those are some of the things we can see in the active data right, right now. Yeah. I, I think one thing that's really, you know, you know, important and something that Friday, we do at Friday and others that are looking at this is try to incorporate as much of those new you know, data series, like you mentioned, into our thinking. You know, the traditional measures are important and helpful, but being able to track things in real time as they evolve in this volatile market is incredibly important. You know, we've been you know, searching for all different kinds of sources, looking at similar data that you mentioned and, and just try to parse it and understand it is, you know, because things happening, you know, with such a delay, like the time you see it in the sales, right, it's already, you know, you know, well past when, you know, the effects have happened. So yes, for I, sure. I, uh, we really look at a lot of high frequency and, and interesting data like the measure you mentioned. I think that's really valuable for anybody who's tracking the market. Yeah. So, so you're seeing a slower home price growth for the next year. Um, yeah. And it's not hard to be slower than the 15% that we've been at. Um, but uh, do you see, uh, so tell me about the likelihood of scenarios that you've looked at that are bigger price cuts, like bigger price adjustments down. A lot, a lot of you know, my audience, my listeners, my Twitter follow YouTube and those things, are very concerned about housing bubble bursting. And and of course, they like to feed the you like to feed your confirmation bias of like any any signal I can find that's going to show you know that happening. So. So help me feed that confirmation bias for a minute. What are the scenarios where, where, we, where we might see bigger home price declines in the next you know, year or two? Yeah, I mean, I think the fundamental factor you got to mix in is a very significant slowdown or recession in the economy, right? If the unemployment rate is as low or near where it is, you know, under 5%, right? And job growth remains solid and people's income is there. I don't see the rental market softening and enough to really, you know, start to affect those investors you mentioned and the investors being a large enough swing, you know, movement in the market to really push the prices. So it's, it's going to take a pretty adverse, I think, economic shock beyond what we've already digested, right, in my view, that we would need to see something else that would kind of trip things up and, and lead to a pretty, you know, deterioration in the income and, you know, employment of homeowners and renters. Right, so to, to to drive the market down. So can't it's not that it can't happen, but it, that that's I think the key ingredient. You can imagine all the factors that could play into contributing to that kind of a thing. There are too many to list, but that's I think the key thing is that if folks have a job, can service the debt, and have that ability, then you know I don't see you'll see for selling, and that wouldn't be the condition you'd need for a you know big slowdown. Now you could still have a big moderation because we're growing high teens depending on the measure, 17, 18%, maybe 20 is the other measures, right? You got to slow that down to 10 or eight, you know, you got to get there. 
that could happen pretty quickly with all the rates. And like we've alluded, maybe some of that's already underway. It just hasn't shown up in all the data. So I think that's where we'll have to really see. But I think, frankly, it's going to, since the housing market's so seasonal, we kind of baked this year. I don't think we'll really know until we get to spring season 2023. I mean, things can happen, right? But I think the real, you know, it's going to be where the market kind of focuses on next spring is, is where. I mean, we'll learn things throughout the rest of this year and into the fall and winter, but we'll really know where we're at as we look at that listing data for the next spring. Yeah, for sure. I, like, I, I think the same thing. It's mostly baked in already. You know, this is, it's now, you know, mid-July. We're already past the peak buying season. Like the, the gains and stuff are get baked in. And in fact, I will go more specific than just next spring. I like between the second and third week of January with that new listings, the price of the mm-hmm. new listings cohort, we can watch the slope of that increase coming in. And this year, for example, in that time, the slope was real dramatic up. And so second and third week of January into February, you watch that. And so what you could see was that demand all the way through now, right? You could see mm-hmm. like people were there. There's so many people buying like, and so, and it'll be really interesting to see that. We could watch that also in, in 2011, we had, in, what had happened was we'd had, I think it was 2011, I give my date, my years right. We had in 2009, we had a first time homebuyer tax credit. Mm-hmm. And, and that went all the way through April 1 of 2010. And it pulled demand forward 2010 into the first and into April of that year. So by the end of 2010, the numbers were looking, the transaction numbers were looking very uh, soft and the headlines were all super bearish. Armageddon back to the housing market. And, you know, and they, and they were looking at like the demand, the 20, the end of the year demand had already happened. But by the time those headlines came out, now it's February and we could already see the price of new listings going up because there's people shopping and there's, you know, people in the open homes. And, and so we could already see in, you know, February of 2011, like there's some demand out here and, and, but all the headlines were still, still bearish. And I, I like to say that my favorite times in, in the data are when I get to be contrarian and bullish. And every once in a while we get there, you get that like right at the beginning of the pandemic, when we were still, you know, the, the, the econometrics folks were still using recession to forecast home prices. We're still, we're showing like, Oh, we're going to 2021 is going to be a big tank year. It's going to be down 6%. But meanwhile, we are like, guys, people are buying houses every day. You know, it was like, you could really see it. So those are fun times. So that'll be that next you know, that second, third week of January is one of my favorite times to look and see what, what happened this week. And then we'll watch yeah. into February. It'll be, it'll be fun to, it'll be really interesting to see. That'll be a good time. No, no shortage of drama here in the housing market, I think, over the last couple of years and into next sounds like. Right. It's, it's one of my one of the fun things. Like there's always this, there's always a story that data is always fresh each week. Okay. We're getting close to an hour here. Are there other things in the forecast? that you found notable or the things that you're like, wow, there's some really interesting trends maybe that the world isn't talking about yet, or, you know, some risks that we aren't thinking about. I think we covered a lot. One of the things that's a little more, you know, specific to the mortgage market, but I do think is important to folks who follow that is what's happened, you know, with refinances. We actually, in a separate report, 
we put out a regular, you know, update on 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 refinance activity. Now with rates up so much, right? You'd expect okay, refis is going to tank and go effectively zero, but not entirely. There's still a decent amount of cash out, and and some folks who analyze that trying to understand, you know, how long is that going to last? Is that just sort of a you know, are we seeing the last bits come in before you know we the rates are digested, or is there something else? Our homeowners deciding that even with these high interest rates, they're willing to pay that in order to tap their substantial home equity, either to finance, you know, remodel, pay off other debts. I think a lot of folks, maybe if they're looking at the tight inventory situation and where prices are, maybe they just say, well, I won't go out. I'll just take my existing home. You know, I got a lot of equity. I can extract the equity and finance, you know, some improvements there, and I'll make that work. So I think that's a really interesting dynamic. And, and, you know, we've never seen rates move this quickly in modern, you know, or at least this century, right? You have to go back to the 80s and, and it's hard. You know, you can look at the 80s and try to figure out, but so much was different then. Is that really what we should expect to happen for home, you know, mortgage owners? And so folks that are tracking the, the mortgage market and specifically, you know, refinance or prepayments, that, that's a really interesting dynamic. And, and while we've got the forecast in, that, that we've released, we've also do these regular reports where we're able to look in depth at what's happening with refinance. And I think for folks, you know, real mortgage, hardcore mortgage nerds or folks that are really focused on the narrow slice, that, that research could be very interesting to them. I think that we're, you know, we're going to put out, you know, the next update here, you know, later summer. Awesome. I will very much look forward to that. I'm, I'm in that boat. Like I have two bathrooms to redo and, you know, 5% is <laughs> better than putting it on a credit card or like, you know, like, yeah. do I sell some stocks now? Like, what you know, <laughs> like, what do you do? So, you know, my tech portfolio is, you know, that's all. Oh, gone. So, so like, well, might as well, you know, so I'm likely to, you know, do some kind of that financing this year to, to not, you know, not, not burn all my cash on my, on my bathroom remodels. Like, I, it could be that I'm not alone. That's really fascinating. And also, you know, we're, we're finally getting past the super crunch in terms of all the labor and things. So like all of a sudden contractors are maybe going to be a little more available. Like we have some more opportunity to do that work. So that's, that's really fascinating. Okay. So I like that. So cash out what happens with refis and cash out refinances are still happening. And it's so uh, like, are there products there that, that like keep, keep going? And, and frankly, it's, I mean, five, five and a half percent. It's not that big a deal, <laughs> right? No, I mean, yeah, from a, from a start, especially if a lot of these folks have, you know, a lot of equity and their income is pretty high and the actual, you know, the amount of equity they're extracting is a percent, right? A lot of folks look at the, some of the volume, right? And they say, oh, no, there's all this cash out that we should be really worried. And it's something we should focus on. But if you look at the percent of equity that's getting withdrawn by recent cash out bars, it's still pretty measured. And so, yes, bars are taken out, but they're not, you know, not leveraging to extreme amounts. And, you know, we compare it to it's like 2005 and six, when it was much, much higher percent. People were topping out, you know, taking as much as they could get. Whereas here, it looks a little more measured. And so it's something we look at, you know, regularly to, to see and understand if there's a risk emerging there or what we make of it. Len, that's so terrific. I really appreciate the time you've taken today. Where should people follow you and connect? connect with you and see your visualizations and all the things. Yeah, great. I mean, I, I love to connect with people on Twitter. You know, Len Keeper is my handle there. And then I'm also on the LinkedIn. I find a lot of interactions. People actually are, you know, surprisingly active there, which is I'm happy to, you know, interact. I share a lot of the similar content there. And a lot of that content is, you know, posted on our Freddie Mac, you know, corporate website where we put our, our research pieces that are put together by myself and the team. A lot of, a lot of other smart people, a lot of cool stuff there, often linked to that. So people can find that. And if they're interested in, you know, specifics like R code, 
I have a personal blog, lenkiefer.com. They can just go check out and get snippets of code and, and copy, you know, make, make it their own, try it, see if it works for you. Happy, you know, connect with me. If you've got questions, you know, I'm always, you know, chat, love to chat up code if people want to talk. Awesome. Yeah. So definitely go follow Len on Twitter for, or LinkedIn for the, for, to see those visualizations. And you might notice if you're in the space and you follow mortgage data and housing data in, in Twitter, social media, like you, you, uh, my guess is you're going to see some of Len's work and you go, Oh, I've seen that before. Like there's some real, there's some real stuff there. It's really great. So, so follow Len in those places is the, the latest Freddie survey and forecast that we've been talking about. Is that broadly available for consumers, like people that we can link to here and, and let them read it? Yeah, yeah. All of our research is available on freddiemack.com slash research, I believe. Yes, that's the URL. So folks can find that. It's all available, no charge. No, they can sign up for alerts if they want to, but you know, it's all just there for the public, for people to consume, for them to analyze and study and, and see what the you know, latest research and data says. Yeah, we'll and we'll include we'll include a link in the the show notes and stuff. So, link to Great. to Freddie Research, Len Kiefer. Thank you so much for your time today. Really appreciate you joining us on the Top of Mind podcast. And everybody else, thank you for joining us. We'll have another one next week. We are, you know, we do these podcasts because we talk about the data so much, but there is so many good thinkers and people who have different perspectives and voices of expertise that we can use to help make better decisions, help to communicate with our, with the people who need to know right now, home buyers and sellers, people, professionals in the industry. So, so join us each week for the top of mind podcast, join us at the Altos research YouTube channel, or visit altosresearch.com to connect with us book a free consult with the team to get data for your market, for your business, and help your buyers and sellers know what's happening in real estate right now. Thank you, everybody. Thanks for listening to Top of Mind. See you again next time and be sure to click subscribe to get future episodes.